0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. In 2018, Stacey Abrams ran for governor of Georgia and lost by just 54,723 votes to Republican Brian Kemp, who was then serving as Georgia's secretary of state. Before Kemp entered the governor's race, he purged 1.4 million voters from the rolls and instituted many other policies to dissuade people from voting. It's a story of the real-world impact of voter suppression. What happened in that race was egregious, but it was not unique. In the aftermath of the election, amidst calls for her to run for Senate and even president, Stacey Abrams has devoted herself to voter protection. Now, in 2020, with the presidential election underway, her organization, Fair Fight, is on the front lines of the effort to educate, empower, and motivate people to vote. We're so lucky to have Stacey Abrams on the podcast today to talk about voting, elections, and the future of American democracy. Stacey Abrams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Stacey, you ran for governor of Georgia in 2018. You were previously a state rep, uh, and then you went on to provide the response to the State of the Union, and people have been approaching you from all corners of the country asking you to run for all manner of positions. I want to start out by asking, how does it feel to have been thrust into the national political spotlight so quickly?
1: Well, I, I appreciate the characterization. I will say I've been working for the last decade in Georgia, helping to rebuild not only the infrastructure of the Democratic Party, but really trying to grapple with the issues that have fundamentally kept so many communities behind. I think people sort of noticed when I ran for governor, but I ran for governor because of 11 years of deep work trying to build and serve. And so I'm grateful for the recognition of what we were able to accomplish. I'm, I'm grateful that people see me as an avatar of what else is possible. And I want to take full advantage of it, but I, I don't want to diminish the support that I've had in Georgia for so many years to build towards what has you know, sort of suddenly flashed on the public's consciousness.
0: It's an important point, And much of the building that you did for that decade continues in your current organization, Fair Fight. And I want to come back to your current work, but let's just stay with the gubernatorial race in 2018 for a minute. Can you tell us, it was a very close fought election where you went up against the former secretary of state, or he was actually at the time the secretary of state. Tell us what happened in that election.
1: We don't know to this day, but I can tell you what we saw. We saw that this secretary of state who had been charged through his oath of office with protecting the right to vote had systematically, for nearly a decade, taken multiple steps to erode and block access to the right to vote. He purged more than 1.4 million voters, including the single largest purge in a single day in the nation's history. He oversaw the closure of 214 precincts, which independent analysis says may have accounted for between 50 and 60,000 people not being able to cast ballots. He was responsible for holding 53,000 voter registrations hostage, uh, 70% of whom were from African-American voters, and the list goes on and on. He and I tangled first in 2014 because of the work I was doing to expand access for the right to vote for people of color. And so as both the referee and the scorekeeper, as well as the contestant, he was able to leverage his position and the access he had to levers of power to deny access to the right to vote for tens of thousands of Georgians. And we know that this happened. We have seen ample evidence, not only through our lawsuit, but through multiple lawsuits that have been filed across the state responding to how, under his leadership, naturalized citizens were turned away from the polls. Groups, entire communities were given provisional ballots uh, unnecessarily. And he failed in his responsibility, I think through a combination of incompetence and malfeasance.
0: It was really a perfect storm of voter suppression. You mentioned all of the different ways, or some of the ways Mm -hmm. that Brian Kemp used his position to suppress the vote. By tens of thousands, if not more than a million and a half voters were affected overall. And your election was decided by about 55,000 votes. So it did make all the difference.
1: 54,723, if anyone's counting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, what was the lesson that you learned from this really tight election that was full of all of these voter suppression initiatives by your opponent? Well,
1: one issue that the Wright has with me is that despite how egregious his behavior was and how lax his oversight was, despite his absolute failure to protect the right to vote for Georgians, we still had an extraordinary election where I received more votes than any Democrat in Georgia history, where we tripled Latino turnout, tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout, increased youth participation by 139% increased Black participation by 40 percent, which meant that in 2014, 1.1 million Democrats cast ballots. But in 2018, 1.2 million Black Democrats voted for me. We had the highest share of white voters voting for Democrats in 30 years. And Each of those metrics demonstrates that the campaign that we ran and the work that we've done has built a brand new coalition in Georgia, the likes of which had never been seen. But it was thwarted by someone who is afraid of losing power, who is a part of a party that rather than change their ideology and their policy positions, have decided to block voters from accessing the most basic and fundamental right of democracy, which is the right to vote. What was more concerning to me, though, is the easy acceptance that his behavior had.
0: I can only imagine the feeling that you and your team had on election night as the returns came in. Uh, The race was initially too close to call, but then you and your team really had a tough decision to make about what to do next. So how did you approach next steps after election night?
1: So election night, our first decision was whether or not to keep fighting to continue the conversation about whether voting was being lawfully handled. What we had seen and heard during the three weeks of early voting, what we saw on election day with four-hour lines, with lawsuits being being necessary to keep polling places open, because one polling place didn't have power cords for the machines, other locations didn't have a sufficient number of machines, some locations ran out of provisional ballots. And our first responsibility on that night was not to argue whether I was the victor or not, but our job was to say we were going to keep fighting. We did that for one very clear reason in my mind. I talked about the remarkable turnout we were able to build and the coalitions we built. Part of the responsibility is when you ask people to suspend their disbelief, to move beyond their either apathy or more, more relevantly, their despair, and to take the risk of voting and participating in a system that doesn't seem to want you. My obligation was to not simply leave the field simply because I didn't like the answer we were getting. We knew that there were votes out there that hadn't been counted, that people who were being denied their rights. And so on the election night on the 6th, we announced that we were going to keep fighting. We immediately converted our campaign work into a ballot chase for provisional ballots, making sure no matter who you were, whether you voted for me or for him, that your provisional ballot was cured and that you were able to be heard. And then the next 10 days, we were part of a consortium of groups that filed multiple lawsuits. Uh, Three and a half were successful that ranged from issues of absentee ballot rejection, provisional ballot issues. And overall, we saw a great deal of success. The problem was it was after so many bad actions that happened and after ballots have been thrown away, after provisional ballots have been rejected, after the collapse of his administrative responsibilities became known. And so part of my responsibility at the end of that 10-day period was to think about how do I preserve our faith in the ideal of a democratic process but not condone the behavior that led to this collapse. and so. On my non-concession day, <laughs> I—it I, really wasn't a complicated conversation. I talked to my campaign manager, Lauren Growargo, and we didn't debate it. It was—I think this is what I need to do. She completely agreed, and I acknowledged the legal sufficiency of the election. Uh, he leveraged and manipulated the laws as they are written, and that led to an outcome that granted him enough votes. But I refused to legitimate a system that allowed that to happen. And so I will not use the words concession because concession means to say something is true, right, or proper.
0: Your next move is fascinating in a lot of ways because at first you were trying to fight for all the votes to be counted to hopefully vindicate your victory in the election. But even after that election was officially over and your non-concession you immediately start focusing on some of the underlying problems with the voting system. And I'm intrigued by the idea that you filed suit not to get yourself put in as the governor, but to challenge some of the process issues. Can you tell us about that pivot to the systemic approach through Fair Fight?
1: Sure. I mean, fundamentally, people don't care about your party. They care about their lives. And when elections become about a single person getting to hold an office, Those who were cynical about the system, those who doubt the integrity and the intentionality of political leaders, have one more scrap of evidence to add to their pile. I could have certainly contested the election. I think we had good information and we could have made a case. But the minute I made the election outcome solely about me, we would have lost thousands of those people who turned up, more than Three quarters of a million people who had not voted in prime in midterms showed up that day Hmm. and voted Democrat. I could not undermine their belief by turning this into an issue of my election. And so I very intentionally chose to challenge the system because one of the, the perennial success of voter suppression happens because we never challenge it at the time. We grumble about it. We worry about it. We may point it out, but we don't fight it. And as long as we allow it to stand, it becomes stronger and stronger. The lawsuit was designed to break that cycle, to say, yes, it was voter suppression, but more importantly, it is a solvable problem. And we can solve it through litigation, through legislation, and through advocacy.
0: And that's exactly what your organization—it's really a set of organizations under the Fair Fight umbrella—have really taken up this initiative in a very comprehensive way. Can you tell us what is the mandate of Fair Fight, and what are you hoping to accomplish?
1: So, as you said, there are two parts to it. There's Fair Fight Action, which is a 501c4. It is the plaintiff in our lawsuit, but it is also the umbrella for work that we're doing on democracy protection across the country. It's the oversight entity for our Fair Fight U, which is our college-based program that's in 14 colleges in Georgia and in D.C. It's our Democracy Warriors Project, which is increasing the ability of average citizens, our super volunteers, to become deeply active in the electoral administration process, getting them to go to election board meetings, getting them to go to budget hearings when the county is deciding how much money will go to fund election processes. Because in Georgia, the state is responsible for some funding, but so are local governments. And what happens is local governments are often left holding the bag, and the Secretary of State abdicates responsibility, so we're trying to pay attention. We have lobbyists who are at the Capitol fighting against terrible legislation, including a bill that's moving right now that would require you to send in a photocopy of your driver's license with your absentee ballot, which is deeply insecure. And so the Fair Fight Action Umbrella is just that. It is about all the active ways we can help build not only litigation and legislation, but community engagement in fighting voter suppression. The second part is Fair Fight PAC. And what that is most well known for is our Fair Fight 2020 program. We operated in four states in 2019, Mississippi, Louisiana, Kentucky, and Virginia. We stood up voter protection teams that helped ensure victory against Matt Bevan and for Andy Bashir, in part because what we did there was help fight back against the purge of more than 175,000 voters. We were instrumental in helping John Bell Edwards get reelected in Louisiana by blocking attempts at voter suppression in majority black neighborhoods during the runoff. We were down in Mississippi really understanding what voter suppression looks like in the 21st century. And we were proud to be a part of what happened in Virginia with that extraordinary wing of success. This year, we're in 18 states, battleground states for the presidency, for Senate races, for down-ballot races, and for flipping chambers. And what we do is we set up voter protection teams and we are helping finance fully the process. And the goal is no matter who the nominee is on the Democratic side, the state party will have in place a fully realized voter protection team that can be scaled and can be in place to defend the election in 2020.
0: We've just cleared Super Tuesday, and we've already seen lots and lots of problems with voting in the caucuses, as well as in some of the primaries. And we all know that there are huge challenges ahead as we go into the general presidential election in 2020. And I'm curious what Fair Fight's top priorities are for engaging in the primary and then going into the general election?
1: We are using the primary to test for the general, and that's exactly the point. We started this project in 2019, first in those four states so we could test our model out, and immediately in the fall began deploying resources to help build staffing. What people often think of is that voter suppression only exists during a general election, and that's not true. Voter suppression exists year-round. It is a systemic issue. And by that, I mean, it actually is baked into the system. It is baked into the voter registration issues and purging. It's baked into whether polling places are open. What we saw in Texas was the direct result of the closure of more than 500 polling places in majority Latino and African-American communities. We know that in Wisconsin, there are going to be challenges for students trying to use their IDs. The same thing happened in New Hampshire. And so what we're trying to do is learn from the primary because voter suppression has always existed during primaries. We just don't notice because it's usually our people who are getting elected, so we give it a pass. But what we want to do is to learn from each of these examples and build the proper response in advance of November. And a lot of these states will have two bites at the apple, the presidential primary, and then often their second primaries for state offices that will happen a little later in this cycle. So, for example, in Georgia, our presidential primary is March 24th, and then our general primary is on May 19th. So we have two bites of the apple, and that will happen in a number of states. Our Fair Fight teams are in place to learn, to work, and to correct so that by the time we get to November, if there needs to be a lawsuit filed, if there needs to be conversations with county officials, if there needs to be legislation proposed and passed. We have time to do that work. That's exactly the point, because typically voter suppression work or anti-voter suppression work and pro-voter protection work doesn't start until September. And if you're in September of an election year, you're too late.
0: I'm curious, as you talk about how urgent all of this work is and how many different areas voter suppression is, as you said, baked into our system, what does success for Fair Fight look like and how are you measuring that? Is it a matter of turnout? Is it a matter of electoral outcomes?
1: It's a matter of mitigation of harm. And that's not as precise a metric as people would love to hear. But the reality is we don't have a single democracy in America. We have 50 different democracies that are administered by more than 3,100 administrative units, counties and parishes. And so we have to think of the complexity of our voting system as part of the problem. And because it's part of the problem, we cannot say that there's a single metric for success. So in each state, we're trying to meet the state where it is and improve it from where it is. So if you're in Nevada or in Minnesota, you've got two of the strongest sets of laws for voter protection, but you also still have voter suppression that occurs in part because of the administrative responsibilities that are allocated to local governments that may not want to do right. Or may not know how to. And so part of what we're helping to determine is which is it? Is it malfeasance or is it the fact that they need more resources or more investment? Looking at Arizona versus a state like Michigan. Michigan now has a governor who wants good elections. They have good election laws, but they have a legislature that is refusing to fully fund the choices made by the state citizens. And so we're trying to be helpful there. We meet each state where it is, and our metrics are, do we mitigate the harm of voter suppression, and do we increase the capacity of voters to make sure their voices are heard?
0: Excuse the expression, but the elephant in the room is that participation has become a partisan issue, right? So you're talking about fighting against voter suppression and making sure people have access— but it's hard to decouple that from the actual electoral outcomes because in our system one party very much wants people to vote and more people to vote and the other party is dead set on having as few people vote as possible.
1: I would tweak that a little bit they want as few people of color they want as few young people they want as few suburban white women who tend to who are who tend towards being single to vote because those are the groups that are part of the rising American electorate the new American majority that are more likely to vote Democratic. And so it is not an intent to stop everyone. It is an intent to stop those who would not support them. The problem is when you break the machinery of democracy, you break it for everyone. But yes, turnout and participation is absolutely a metric to look at. My point is that I don't want to put a false number out there because when you set that as a standard, then people can't see what's actually accomplished. And I can't say that it's going to be a 17% increase in X place. That's not the point. The point is we make certain that every person who wants to cast a ballot can cast that ballot. And we know we do that best work in the pack through state parties who have every intention to not only increase participation, but make sure that participation is real and made manifest.
0: Well, I want to ask you one more question about your analysis of where we stand as a country before we wrap up. And it's around a question that we've heard people discussing in the Democratic electorate and the electorate at large in terms of uh, geography, in terms of race, in terms of gender. But one of the most salient issues in this election seems to be generational. Uh, And we have, I know you were raised by pastors who imbued you and your siblings with a deep sense of civic engagement. And I come from a similar cultural milieu, if you will. But I know that people in my generation and younger... While they 're very energized and very inspiring in many ways are often less inclined to vote than earlier generations, especially within the african American community so i 'm wondering if you have any ideas about how we confront these generational issues both within the African American community and then within the electorate at large
1: i 'll start with the electorate at large. The reality is young people have always had a lower participation rate in part because the acuteness of the issue and the Attention to the system is less when you're younger. It just it tends to be so no matter which generation. Uh, there have been spikes, but those spikes typically coincide with emergencies. And so I do think that we do a disservice to your generation and Gen Z by casting them as lesser actors than their predecessors. I'm part of Gen X, and I remember when, the, when boomers were saying that Gen X refused to vote and refused to participate. So this is a perennial conversation. That said, there is a legitimate set of constraints and concerns that are new and that are specifically affecting younger voters of color, especially young black voters. Voter suppression was kept in check in part by the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act said that bad acting states had to jump through hurdles to be worse. In 2013, the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act essentially said, do what you will. And immediately, there were attempts made to De-legitimize voting, especially among communities that were not seen as valuable. That has a concomitant effect when you add it to what's happening often with elections, where because black voters are often not treated as targets for persuasion, only targets for mobilization, then they're left out of the conversation for much of an election because the fundamental reality in an electoral process is that when someone says persuasion that means they're going to talk to you from the time they get on the ballot until the time that ballot is cast if you're a mobilization target they don't reach out to you until the very last minute like they need to borrow your car to get to the airport if all if you know that they don't care about you because they haven't talked to you then the, le- the legitimacy of their interest the authenticity of their engagement is suspect. We solve that problem by actually treating every voter, especially every likely Democratic, progressive, liberal, moderate voter as a persuasion target from the beginning. We have to invest in every community, especially communities of young Black voters. We have to engage them in a real and authentic way. And we have to stay around. This fly-by-night, I'm going to have a concert. A concert is not a persuasion opportunity. (laughs) You have to have a conversation. And the conversation has to begin by asking, how can I help? And then shutting up and listening to the answer. And the next response has to be, here's the solution I can offer. Can you help me get it done? If we want more young voters, if we want more Black young voters, Latino young voters, and we often allied the reality that we have a fast-growing Asian American population, and we have pockets of Native Americans who've been completely ignored by both parties, We have to do the work of going into those communities early, staying there late, and investing in their voices.
0: Well, thank you for sharing those deep insights and analysis. I want to finish with two quick questions. First, the $64,000 question, what's next for Stacey Abrams?
1: I have no idea, but I will say this. (laughs) I am excited about the work I'm able to do around voter protection, around the census, around good policy in the Deep South. And my mission is to do that work from the outside and to find a place to stand that will help me do it from the inside when the opportunity arises. That was a very politician answer, but it is as clear as I can be because that's about as clear as it is in my head.
0: (laughs) Well, I appreciate the clarity and the honesty. One final quick one. It's Women's History Month. Who's a woman that you look up to for guidance and leadership?
1: My mom. I know that's a a tropey answer and very cliched. But my mother was the only one of her seven siblings to finish high school. She managed to get two master's degrees, raised six children, is raising my niece, has managed a 51-year marriage, and is an extraordinary leader on so many levels. And so she's the person I turn to.
0: Sounds good to me. Thank you so much, Stacey Abrams, for your time and all of your tireless work. And we can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week. Peace.